0: Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us.
1: our sermon this evening is in God's Word at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, what I've just read to you. That's uh, page 886 in your pew Bible. It is what is known as the prologue to John's Gospel. It's a literary prologue, as its title suggests. It's an introduction which will gather together the key themes of John's entire work. It's there to help the reader understand. And what I want to focus on tonight is that very last sentence in the original and two sentences in the English because of its position. It's right at the end. And In the rhetoric of the day, that was the climax of the prologue itself. One could even argue it's the greatest statement in John's gospel, perhaps even the most profound. And let me read it to you again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, there are three statements John underlines here, and we should examine them carefully. The first is that he describes Jesus as the word of God. And the second is that this word of God became flesh and lived among us. And the third is that John himself had seen the glory in this word of God who became flesh. So let's begin with the first. He is the word of God. Now, the first of John's assertions is to describe the relation of the Lord Jesus, whom he knew, to the eternal God. And John identifies this title, the Word, as being Jesus. It's in his prologue's opening statement that you heard. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning." Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. Now what does all this mean? Well, for the original audience, they would have been steeped in the Old Testament, you see, and they would recognize right away what John was doing. Because he's deliberately quoting from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Specifically chapter 1, verse 1, those first words, In the beginning God. God created the heavens and the earth. So the conclusion here is simple. John is simply arguing that in that very same beginning, the word was there. The word was with God. And notice also he puts everything in the past tense. Was with God. That way he's pointing beyond creation, before creation. In other words, what John's doing is quietly pulling his hearers through the ages, still further back before the universe and time were born. And he makes this astonishing statement about the Lord Jesus. He was there as the word in the beginning. And he was the word that spoke the universe and time into existence. That's precisely what you heard in the prologue to the letter, the epistle to the Hebrews. And more strikingly, the word was with God. Now, what you may not hear in the English, if you go back to the original language, you get a sense more literally of a being towards God or face to face with God. And the sense he's using here is to understand what was the cultural norm of his time. Indeed, it probably is for us today. Now, one of those, is common that a man may not lock eyes with a woman without intention. So what do I mean by that? Well, what if you were to see a young man, and he would lock eyes with a young woman, and you knew the woman had a boyfriend or a fiancé or a husband? You would get an unsettled sense. You would think, well, gee, something's wrong here. Because you know, somehow this sense of belonging one to another is specially given and held uniquely. And so the bond is there to lock eyes like that, is to risk transgressing that bond. And that shocking reality is what John is communicating here, that the Lord Jesus, as God, locked eyes, as it were, with his heavenly father. They had a unique, majestic relationship, this bond in love and grace. So John deliberately stretches our imagination here that the glory he witnessed in his life, in Jesus, is the son in the bosom of the Father. Just as John, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and would rest on Jesus' own chest, as Central Asian men still do, describes in terms his hearers would understand. This is the real essence of the Lord Jesus. And just to make sure that we make no mistake at all, John writes that not only was the word of with God, but the word was himself God. And he goes on and gives evidence that this is true all through his gospel. What begins here in the prologue, we see again and again. He writes, in him was life. The world was made through him. And he underlines this always in the character of Jesus, describing what he said or what he did, to highlight the character of God himself, to be one with the Father, to speak with the same words, with the authority of the Father, to exercise signs and wonders over the creation that only the Father could do. I wonder if you've read an essay written by the English Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, What Are We to Make About Jesus Christ? And in it, he writes this, if the Buddha were asked, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, Are you Allah? He would have first tore his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven, I think he would probably have replied remarks like that are not in accordance with nature and are therefore in bad taste. Now, Lewis's point is quite simple. It's out of the question to insist that Jesus is merely a moral teacher. If you read through his Gospels, the accounts of his life, you do not have that spot to stand in. Because he claims over and over again that he is God himself. He is no moral teacher. Rather, he would be a wicked blasphemer if he were lying. And that's precisely the charge that was brought to the Roman authorities that got Jesus actually executed. He blasphemed. This is what Lewis concludes. He, Jesus, produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing a mild approval. And so John here, right at the start, confronts us with the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again in such a way that we are forced to make a decision about him. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he says what he says he is is true. He is the Lord God himself. The John who makes these points is one of the few human beings who knew Jesus intimately, and he writes in relation to to eternity to describe who Jesus is. This is his relation to God himself in eternity. But then when we come to consider time, we come to his nativity. That's the next point he makes. He is the word of God who became flesh. The word becomes flesh. Now notice he doesn't write God became man. Why does he use the word flesh? Because John wants to underline how far Jesus has traveled without losing his divine identity. He doesn't write that Jesus was changed into a man, into flesh. He writes he became flesh. In other words, and here's the key, everything he always was, is in the flesh. He remained all that he was, and now he is in human flesh. But there's even more here, because you see, flesh in the Old Testament emphasizes weakness, frailty, a sense of little significance. It is a sense that a sum of all with which the cosmos can assail us so that we feel frail and weak. We're buffeted by life, and we feel that frailness. We can't do anything about it. That's what the Old Testament flesh is getting at. And what stuns the John is the amazing truth that God becomes flesh. He describes later on how Jesus became tired, how he became thirsty, again, how he was troubled in his spirit, how he was moved to weep at the grave of a close dear friend, how he saw death wreak havoc in a close family, and how at the time of his arrest and trial and torture, as it was getting closer, Those who were with him describe how his distress was so deep, it caused his blood to seep through capillaries and glands so that his sweat appeared to drip tinged with the redness of blood. There was no heroic stoicism here at all. But those who witnessed this realized something unique is going on here. Jesus faces the reason he became flesh, so that he might go and take the burden and punishment of our sins on the cross. And he did this in frail human flesh. The Lord Jesus became and dwelt among us as the Son of God. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the language, again, John uses is deliberate. There is no illusion in Jesus of mere appearance in his flesh. You see, again, his hearers would have understood the language of the Old Testament. Because what he's doing here, he talks about this dwelling, is he's using the language of the tabernacle. Literally a tent. The one that was constructed at God's own word as a place where he could dwell safely. The tabernacle, in other words, was a genuine thing. This tent protected the Israelites when the purity of God's glory descended into its center because if they came too near, they would be consumed because the glory would have been too much for them. But now, John is saying, rather than be consumed in that glory, now this glory is enfleshed. It is present with us, near us. And that's what he writes about next. He writes about the relation to time and eternity, and he relates in relation of all those things, but now he talks about himself, in relation to John himself. John beheld his glory. The word of God who became flesh revealed God's glory. Now, when you think about it, we can say something is glorious but we don't say they are the glory he she is glory but john says the word made flesh and i saw his glory now where does the glory lie the glory of heaven the majesty the impossible to perceive fully by our human sense glory of god and this goes into the weakness of a human womb, and into the sinfulness of our world, its brokenness and in all of its need. So we start to see now John's strategy of this prologue, don't we? He's saying, let me set these truths about Jesus right at the beginning. Then you can think about all of them all through my gospel." The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, this glory, this idea of glory, well, how can we even grasp this in our time? Well, we've learned a lot more about the magnitude and majesty of the universe since John's day, haven't we? Indeed, it was a year ago tomorrow, December 25th, 2021, that the James Webb Space Telescope was launched. And since its deployment and startup, the high resolution and sensitivity of that instrument has allowed astronomers to view objects too old, too distant, and too faint than we have ever seen before. Stars and galaxies and stellar objects that go back to the beginnings of the universe itself fill their field of view and they speak of the humbling realization that they've been as good as blind as they pondered the universe. And yet, when God's glory is compared to this, we could ask ourselves, how then are the stars, Stars and the galaxies described in Genesis 1. It it becomes a throwaway line that God made the sun and the moon and the stars. His infinity, his majesty, is even beyond all that all the astronomers have witnessed. He is all knowledge and all authority He is the ultimate in perfection, perfect love, perfect being. And so we could ask ourselves, can't we? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? We can't hide from a being like that. We can't fool God, who sees the glories of the universe as an incidental thing. And yet it's this one who came in flesh and blood. You know, I think maybe this year that's finishing could be called the year of monarchy. The world stopped and watched as a godly and faithful queen was laid to rest. And for many, it brought to mind another funeral, another royal, this time a young princess. And there were images from 30 odd years ago, a long time now, in the midst of another terrifying illness, a pandemic of sorts that was rushing through the human population, and people were quite frightened by it. They wouldn't go near those who had it. But this young princess, this picture of beauty and poise, deliberately sat down beside a hospital bed to touch and embrace and give a word of comfort to another man horribly marred, dying of AIDS. It changed our perspective on things. The fact that she did that. Now, do you think, my dear friends, that less of her beauty in what she did? Or do we think more that where her beauty is seen is the way she came down and touched that young man and embraced him and didn't hesitate to give him comfort and so raises the dignity of that young man dying of AIDS from the condition that she is in And we stand back and we marveled and the world changed. And we realized that beauty is not dependent on another or a culture assessing what beauty is, but it comes from within. It's the one that reaches out to the tragedy outside of her, didn't it? And my dear friends, that's a small glimpse of the Lord Jesus. That's what John saw in all his own weakness and his burden. The burden of a life that did not turn out the way he imagined. He saw Jesus move, the grace of God, the glory, the beauty of Jesus that reached out and raised him up and many others marred by sickness and disease, grieved by death. But John knew, and they knew, that they were spiritually bankrupt, spiritually filthy and needy. And the Lord Jesus embraced them in all their indignity, all their spiritual deformity. And he said to John, I receive you, you receive me. And John turns to us and says, do you see? Do you see the beauty here? Do you see the glory here? There's two Johns in the prologue, isn't there? The other one is John the Baptist. He asks a different question. Do you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Now, both Johns are saying the same thing. They're telling us that the only place that you will find resolution for these things is in Jesus Christ. Jesus descends to die like a slave on a gibbet, the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world, your sin and mine, and we have seen his glory. And because we have received him, we gain the right to become children of God, to call God Father, my dear friend, you may never in your life from your heart called God Father. You may have said the prayer, our Father, but you not claimed him as your own. There's never been a moment in your life when you said that, my Father. And so John writes how he saw the same pattern that he experienced repeated in others. That's why he wrote all to all Who did receive him? The Lord Jesus who became what he was, not so that we could become what we are not, but rather to become more, to become children of God. It's the fundamental human problem. No matter what our family may be, no matter what our family history may be, when it comes to who we are spiritually, my dear friends, we are all orphans. We've wandered, wondering if there's a place to call home and to know that you're loved. And My dear friends, John says, yes, there is. There is a place. He is the one. The Lord Jesus takes away my sin. He's the word made flesh. He spoke to my heart. I saw his glory, and we know the whole of our lives will never be the same. And you know, my dear friends, that's why we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Christmas is not a celebration It is ultimately what is happening to us. Here's the thing. You can spend a lifetime celebrating Christmas, but never having Christmas. So I have a simple question. It's John's question. Have you received him? Have you ever called God my Heavenly Father? Ever? Well, this could be the night This could be the place, the very moment when you receive Christmas for the first time. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Amen.
0: for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.